Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover The Regulators, chapters 5 through 7. Let's start the show! We learn more about Seth and Tack, an entity that seems to inhabit Seth and is the probable source of the troubles on Poplar Street. The troubles are getting worse as the residents take shelter in a couple of houses, but when the mysterious vans form a fire column, more destruction and death occur. The interstitials give us a partial script of a motocops episode, a strange drawing by Seth, and some insight into Seth's condition from journal entries written by his aunt, Audrey. What did you think of this section of the book, Sean? Jay, we spent some time last episode talking about how King did a really nice job of laying out an interesting story, but not giving us too much details, but still giving hints at, at things were, that were happening and using the interstitials to hint at a broader story, despite the fact that the main story is only taking place in those first four chapters in like a 20-minute period. Mm -hmm. And then we got to this section, and chapter five just seemed like a really inelegant info dump of information as King laid out through the eyes of Audrey exactly what was happening with this tack entity and how it's causing all these problems, at least within that family at first and what we assume is happening uh outside of the house and it just seemed very tough to read through after those jam-packed interesting first chapters i largely agree i don't think i struggled with it as much as it sounds like you did but i really liked king's light touch in the first four chapters and compared to those these felt a lot clunkier it just felt like a series of info dumps Yes. And those those always feel a little bit harder to just let slide by. And I don't know if there's a good solution to it. I mean, the problem is, is that this story seems to be told almost in real time where everything's happening real quick and it's not an easy way for the characters to find this stuff out. But for us as a reader to just have to read page after page of, and then this happened with Tack, and then this happened with Tack, and this is what Tack actually is. And let me describe it all out for you and how Seth is the the vessel for this entity called Tack. It just was like, oh, all that mystery is gone. Mm. And not only that, but then the the rest of the chapters were a lot of the same. Hey, there's vans attacking people and killing them. And some of the shock that existed in those first four chapters has worn down a little bit. Like, okay, more more people are dying after this. We need to move the story along in a further way. And we get to that point at the end of chapter seven where Kali the cop and Steve Ames make this decision to like, okay, we're going to do something about this. But until we got to that, it was just a lot of characters hiding and waiting to be shot or dealing with the fact that their neighbors got shot. I suspect that King, given all of his talent and skill, could have found a way to make this a little bit more elegant. But in his defense, he set up a story where something inexplicable was happening in a very short amount of time. When I say inexplicable, I mean it's like, random. Hmm. We might eventually find out that there are some events or causes that led to this, but magical life-size toys 
driving down a neighborhood and shooting everybody and blowing up houses with giant guns. There's not a lot to say like, oh, well, that, you know, we could base that on the patterns of history or kind of thing. Like this is just random stuff. And if we had known all these characters for chapters and chapters, if we had spent half of a book with them and then this happened, we would still be puzzled by it. So I think that's part of the challenge. I think King needed to give us this much more information for us to grasp what was going on around these characters so that we can continue to care about what happens next. But it felt like it should have been, I don't know, maybe spread out a little bit. So you don't think that King was making like a giant parable about how the Chinese manufacturing of goods and services to the United States and other first world countries is being represented and through these toys that have come to life. And really, it's all brought on by Richard Nixon's detente with Nixon when he actually went to China in the in the early 70s. I think it's more about how TV studios will just put any crap that they can get their hands on for not a lot of money on TV in the quote unquote service of entertaining children. Fair enough. I, I think it might also have to do with the deregulation of TV so that whereas before cartoons were expected to have a now you know type of educational purpose to allow them to be on TV, once that went away and regulation of the cartoon industry went away, it really just sort of became a more violent situation. And this is represented through this book, The Regulators. Is that why it's called The Regulators? Yes, exactly. It should have been called The Deregulators. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mentioned Steve Ames a few moments ago, and Steve Ames is this interesting character. So he is the, you might want to say, interloper on the street. You might want to say that, yeah. He is the one who's driving a U-Haul and through a series of misadventures of him not knowing where he needs to be and, and needing to get his the truck fixed, etc. He ends up on Poplar Street at the convenience store and is drawn into this situation. And he is an interesting character because he doesn't really fit in with the rest of them, but he's trying. Yeah. What are your thoughts on Steve Ames? Well, I think the first thing about Steve Ames that struck me is that he's very much a Larry Underwood type. Mm. There are a lot of things about him that remind me of Larry, including the, the long hair, the connection to the music industry, and the fact that up until the moment that this story begins, he's had this mantra and lived by this philosophy of no problem, man. And as long as something is easy or pleasant, he'll hang around. And as soon as it's not easy or not pleasant, he's gone. Yep. If he owes money, I'm out. If he doesn't like the job anymore, it's too stressful, I'm out, right? And life is just no problem, man. Maybe he's like a less angry version of Larry Underwood. Larry Underwood, I think, had a little bit of, you know, just he was sort of angry at the world and that was part of his, his darker side. But we also get an inkling of Steve Ames as being he does have a backbone. He does have the instinctive response to this, to this situation of trying to help. Yes. And that doesn't seem to be like the version of him that we've learned about in this like sort of flashback of right. the no problem. And this is something that he would be running from, but he's not running. No. And it's not because he can't, although I don't think he can run very far, but he's not just retreating to save his own skin. He thinks that he needs to help the rest of the people around. Yeah. It's, and we saw that in that first chapter when he is part of the, the team who rescues the two young children. Uh, they're about to get shot and he pulls them into his truck. And then 
at the end of this section, he's off with Kali saying, like, what can we do? Where can we go? How how do we get help? Mm-hmm. And that's pretty selfless. It'd be very easy for him to hole up somewhere and be like, all right, I'm just going to wait till this passed. This isn't any of my business. And he's not doing that. Uh, it's also interesting that he seems to have a little bit of the shine. Yeah. He gets these feelings and reacts on them. And most of the way he reacts on them is, I'm out because <laughs> this looks mm-hmm. bad. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nope out when, when things go wrong. But here, that's not the case. You also made a good point that I didn't notice. There is a connection to Hearts of Atlantis here that yeah. I totally overlooked. Yeah. One of the times that Steve Ames, um, or maybe one of the earliest times in his life that he noped out of something was when he flunked out of college. And it was because he had an obsessive bridge playing habit. And bridge is not the same as hearts, but they are similar card games where I think it's like four people and you bet. You're playing for tricks and bids and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So I could see that this obsession over bridge, like an obsession over hearts, could really be the reason why people could flunk out of school. We watched it happen in Hearts in Atlantis and to the consternation of the other characters, like how how can you let a card game do this to you? And if you're alive in the wrong time period, that might mean getting shipped off to Vietnam. That's not what Steve Ames is all about, but he is clearly a really smart person because he started off at MIT and then he decided that was too much work. So then he (laughs) went to Boston University and then he flunked out of there because he was too busy playing bridge. The other interesting thing about Steve Ames, and this will be our a nice transition, is that he really fits into this Western trope of a drifter who comes into town Mm. and the townspeople aren't sure of who he is, but he might become the hero of the story. There's many a Clint Eastwood movie that are that is about that. And whether or not Steve is going to become the hero, we don't know. But he's taking that arc that Larry Underwood did where he starts off as like, hey, I'm all about me. I don't want any involvement. And Larry Underwood eventually made a stand. We don't know if Steve's going to get to that point, but perhaps he's going to be the unlikely hero. Do you think Steve Ames has a piece of steel underneath his poncho? <laughs> Possibly. It might be a good idea. (laughs) It might be. And the reason that that's interesting that Steve fits a Western trope is what we learn about tack. And one of the chapters, there's a quote that says, tack is building, tack is making. And he seems to be taking the existence of Poplar Street and turning it into something different uh, as the residents look around and see different things that aren't there usually, like a hitching rail adobe buildings, log cabins, and nothing looks quite the same as it used to. Is it a mass hallucination or is it something different? It is interesting that we learn that Tack is from the desert and he's turning this quintessential Ohio town into the Old West. Mm -hmm. And it's an Old West that I don't know that ever really existed. It's the old, rather it's the Old West that we've seen in movies like Clint Eastwood movies, and like the movie that Tack and Seth watch over and over and over again. It's a movie set, not a real Old West setting. Right. It's it's the 1950s bonanza or rawhide type of set that comes on where it's a lot of facade. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of saloon doors, I would imagine, and banks and jails with the bars on the windows that you can see from the street. Yep. Uh, we've all seen this before. We've all know what it looks like based on our our understanding of westerns 
And this isn't unusual for King. King likes to play with media and other types of storytelling. And so to have this filtered into that, um, coming through Seth, who always has the TV on and has these Westerns on, is not unusual. And we get that hint that it's not quite right. Uh, it's Poplar Street that's wrong, King writes. It seems to be twisting out of perspective in some way she can't quite define. Angles changing, corners bulging, colors blurring. It's as if reality is on the verge of liquefying, and she thinks she knows why. This is the character who is the girl who runs the convenience store, who's noticing it. She's out there with Steve Ames and Kali and trying to figure out what's going on. And this isn't the only thing that isn't quite right. You know, you mentioned earlier that it seems to be giant toys running up and down the street. Mm -hmm. And elsewhere, we see these oversized childlike bullets and a woman who looks like a cartoon figure. And if you look at that one interstitial I mentioned earlier, it's a drawing that Seth does that has this idea of like, here's what a bullet looks like. Here's what a gun looks like. Here's what a, a building looks like. And it's not quite right. It's almost as if it's a, a, a five-year-old's picture come to life. Yeah. And then nothing is to scale, but the things that, that the people in the story are experiencing seem to be like leaping from that drawing. Yes, indeed. Sean, what you just said made me think of Dark Tower Thinnies. Indeed. So we're getting some Dark Tower Thinnies here. Mine was uh, that one of the characters says it's shimmery. And shimmery just sort of actually encompasses the idea of a thinny, right? Like if you look at yeah. it, it's this weird sort of shimmery uh, illusion that comes through that can't quite get and we saw that in a lot of the dark tower books including wizard and glass yeah like the mirage on the desert like the the heat lines or yeah or something and that fits right in with this old west look and feel that we're we're dealing with i i brought this into dark tower thinnies because of oi and king's oh. love of corgis and my love of oi there's a moment when I think it's Steve Ames, he's taking in the, I guess you'd call it artwork that's in one <laughs> of the houses that he has retreated into when they're being attacked. And he's noticing that the, the owner of this house has framed photos of all of her former pets. And included with the photo is a description of what made that pet extra special. <laughs> and they're all varying degrees of strange, but this one wasn't. That's strange, but it did catch my attention. And the description was, on the wall to his left was a framed photograph of a small brown dog with eerily intelligent eyes. On the matting beneath the photo, carefully printed in block letters was, Daisy, Pembroke Corgi, age nine, could count, showed apparent ability to add small numbers. <laughs> and damn it, I just gave myself goosebumps. That's oi. Yeah. If only Daisy could talk like Oi. Yeah, we don't know. Maybe the owner just didn't write that part because oh, figured true. no one would believe it. It's true, yeah. Yeah, we haven't thought about Oi in a while. That's a good uh that's a good thinny. Well, you haven't thought about Oi in a while. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. All right, well, here's the time when we usually do yucking it up. <laughs> but we retired that segment, Jay. Which is unfortunate because this section is full <laughs> of yucking it up moments. So just as one last hurrah, like a character's arm gets shot off and is hanging there for a while. And then they end up putting it in a refrigerator. Well, yeah. And having to work around it. Like one of many yucking it up moments in this section. 
well, so much for retiring it. You just yucked <laughs> it up right there. But listeners, we've been debating whether we should retire this section or not. If you love yucking it up, let us know. If you don't like it and you're glad to see it go, let us know that too. Yes. We would love some confirmation one way or the other. We love doing it, but we also know that it might be the part of the show that makes everybody a little bit uh, queasy. <laughs> but we got that sound effect just sitting there waiting to be used if necessary. That's right. All right. We do want to thank our patrons for their continued support of the show. They get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. And they do that by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower and signing up to support the show. Another way that you can support the show is by rating us on iTunes. And if you send us an email, we'll be sure to read it and respond and maybe even uh, read part of it on the air, like Sean's about to do right now. Yeah, we got an email from a Jordan O. And Jordan says uh, that they're a big fan of the show and was delighted when we announced we'd be covering the regulators, which we're in the midst of right now. Jordan says that they have a soft spot for the book because the regulators and desperation were how I discovered Stephen King. I was nine when the novels came out, and I vividly remember seeing those two matching Mark Ryden hardcovers laid out side by side at my bookstore. The images, cartoonish but also sinister and unsettling, stuck with me and ultimately inspired me to start reading King. Perhaps that's why I'll always consider myself a Regulators fan, or maybe the right word is apologist. So I am still on the fence as to where this book uh, lies for me, if I'm going to enjoy it or become an apologist, uh, or you know maybe say, hey, this was a, a crap book, but who knows? Uh, Jordan notes that The Regulators is almost always listed near the bottom of Stephen King books ranked coming in 47th in a Barnes & Noble article and 60th out of 64 in a Vulture article. Uh, I know I could think of at least one book that I think is much worse than this so far, so I'm sure, Jay, you probably have other Stephen King books that you don't like as much as this one. Yeah, I'm enjoying this so far. Yeah. It's been a little rocky, that, as we touched on earlier, but so far, so good. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. So, Jordan, thank you for that email, and we'd love to hear from any other folks who would like to comment on the show and tell us how we're doing and stroke our egos because Jay and I could always use that. <laughs> yes. Sean, how about some fun stuff? Oh, yeah. Fun stuff indeed. I'll kick us off. The first thing I noted was that it seems that King has no regard for the size of people's pockets, their <laughs> pants pockets, their shirt pockets. Characters put very large items in their pockets with no problem. One of them is a big motocops action figure that's like 10 inches tall. He's like, ah, oh, just put it in my, my front <laughs> pants pocket and walk around. Yeah. Like, no. Another one is this giant seven inch bullet, which is like two inches wide, seven inches long, sharp enough to cut skin and is solid metal. So it probably weighs like 12, 15 pounds. I'll just put that in my other pants pocket <laughs> and walk around. And somebody put a whole box of bullets in their front shirt pocket, and they're just fine. That, that's not just like dragging the shirt off of their back. No biggie. I know I love to just nitpick these things, but everybody's just like, yeah, just put it in my pocket. Yeah, just put it in my pocket. It's not even that they're just walking around, but like one of the characters I think is Johnny, and he's like crawling army style throughout the house. So like mm -hmm. that's got to be uncomfortable if you've got a box of ammunition in your pocket or an action figure poking at your leg as you're crawling around. Yeah, it's just weird that King makes such a big deal about telling us exactly how big this bullet is, because it's important to the story that it's a child's imagination of a bullet. 
right? Right. So it's massive and it's strangely shaped and it's solid metal. So if you know how big it is, how could it possibly fit in your pocket? Yeah. Unless King just wears really baggy pants and he's like, everything fits in my pockets. I got a pumpkin in there. I got got my every character. Every character's wearing cargo pants. Yeah, just that's lots of pockets, tactical (laughs) pants. Yeah. So the Moto Cops script that is one of the interstitials here is so bad that the teleplay is created to Alan Smithy. And Alan Smithy is the famous fake name that directors use when they don't want their name attached to a movie. Mm. And what I found interesting about that is that Audrey later on talks about how she's trying to find out more about what happened to her family. And she says that she had gotten a letter from a man named Alan Symes. So Alan spelled the same way and the same first initial S for the last name, Alan Smithy, Alan Symes. And she's wondering if the letter is real or if this person is not telling her the truth about what happened to her family. So I thought that that was an interesting connection. And then just to add on a little bit more wild speculation that has no basis in reality, the character we were talking about earlier is Steve Ames, which is the same initials just backwards instead of as it's sa uh that might be a big stretch but i noted it and thought it was interesting and potential fun stuff yeah i i I like all of those things i like all those points you make but i i I don't necessarily uh agree that they're related to each other but you you don't want to subscribe to my newsletter about this i've got a whole wall (laughs) of red string connecting all of this on on my my board behind me that's right (laughs) <laughs> You're just freaking out about the letters S and A. S-A. It means something. I wish they were R and F. That would really mean something. Yeah, that would have gotten our juices flowing there. So let me uh, straighten my pedant cap ever so perfectly <laughs> once more and uh, point out the fact that Motocops 2200 does not have good space math because in this atrocious script written by Alan Smithy, Early in the episode, somebody remarks that something is 150,000 light years away. And then they go on to say, just a few pages later, we only have 72 hours to solve this crisis. So how can 150,000 light years be a danger in 72 hours? Uh, Maybe they're making the Kessel Run in 12 parsecs and it's all weird space math. But it's going to take light. 150,000 years to get there. Are they traveling faster than night? Whatever 72 hours is, man. They must be going through a wormhole or something. All right, fine. I retract (laughs) all of that. It's faster than night travel. This is Motocops 2200. Who knows what technology they have? The amount of power, though, because don't they mention that the ship is just like the size of like a building as well? Yeah, or bigger. It's like some sort of flying corridor. Yeah, it's crazy. That's why Alan Smithy didn't put his real name on it. Um, If we still had yucking it up, this might go here. But Audrey notices that Tack is not always fully in control of Seth's body. Every now and then she can see Seth's humanity behind the eyes. There's just this subtle change and she realizes that Tack's either not at the forefront or has left the body and and it's really Seth there. And one of the times is uh, she notes that Tack apparently didn't like to be around when its host moved his bowels. And so that's when Seth has a moment to himself, as all men seek, which is, I just want some time on the shitter. (laughs) 
Uh, way to keep it classy, Sean. <laughs> That's what I do, man. That's what it's I do. not a fun stuff until you bring up a poop reference. <laughs> uh, so this is a stretch for me, but whenever Pie Carver kept yelling Gary at her husband, Gary, Gary, <laughs> in my mind, I was hearing the scene in Weird Science where Gary is introducing Kelly LeBrock to his parents. And his mom is yelling, Gary, Gary. Oh, Gary. We'll put a link to a YouTube clip of the scene in the show notes. So Gary was not. Gary was Anthony Michael Hall. Okay. So the other kid went to grad school with a friend of ours. Oh, really? Yeah. He went to study medieval literature after not becoming an actor. Yeah, he didn't quite have the, uh, the charisma of Anthony Michael Hall. Who does? Not many people. Okay, I felt extremely ignorant when I came across a word that I thought was gestapoish. G-E-S-T-A-P-O-I-S-H. King describes a character as gestapoish. And I'm like, boy, that seems like a word I should know. And I looked it up online and it didn't come up as a real word. And then I started looking through the Google results. And then I finally realized, oh, it's gestapoish. It's not guess the push. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to leave guess the push, though, in my, uh, in my vocabulary, though, because I do think it's a neat sounding word. I, I, I was trying to figure it out. Like, I'm like, all right, guesta sounds like maybe like it's culinary in some way. And is push like a different word for posh? But yeah, Gestapo-ish. I mean, Gestapo is a Russian word, right? Sure. I believe you. And when you say guess the push, it sounds like you're speaking more Russian, right? Yeah, like maybe it's some sort of uh, stew, a gestapoish. Yeah, with like sauerkraut you know, and potatoes beets and beets. Potatoes. Yeah, yeah. It's a type of borscht, right? It's a local local uh, variation. Anyhow, we've just lost all of our Russian listeners. Sorry, guys. So I've got two more items and fun stuff. One was that I really loved King's architectural assessment of bland. I believe this is Steve Ames' mental assessment of the Easy Stop, and he describes it to himself as, its style is still late century convenience store, sometimes known as pastel cinder block, sometimes known as still life with dumpster. I just thought that was a nice little clever turn of phrase. Agreed. I could totally picture it. Like, I'm sure we all have the quintessential Easy Stop convenience store in our mind right now that we've been to or seen, and this description fits it perfectly. I could even see that framed on a wall in an inexpensive hotel. <laughs> yes. Still life with dumpster. And then the final thing I had was that there was a mention of Eddie Vedder. I think when uh, two of the characters uh, went into one of the bedrooms looking for a view on Poplar Street, and there's a poster of Eddie Vedder on the wall. And that, of course, reminds me of the Weird Al song, My Baby's in Love with Eddie Vedder. Gotta love it when we can mention Weird Al on the show. Always gonna try whenever I can. Well, thank you for that Weird Al reference, Jay. That's gonna be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Regulators, chapters 8 and 9. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. 
Thanks for listening. Inelegant, man. No problem, man. Tacus building, man. Dark Tower thinnies, man. What's up with all the man, man?